0: Let's go. go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hi, folks. Welcome to Making Data Simple. Al Martin here. As always, I hope this message meets with all of you extremely well. Thanks for listening. Tell us how we're doing by rating us uh, wherever you listen, and uh, hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com and will certainly hit you back. Uh, we appreciate all the comments that we receive. I'm going to jump right into it. Today, I have Dr. Kayla Lee. Dr. Lee has a very prestigious background. Hampton College, Cellular and Molecular Biology. Then went to Harvard, was a research assistant at Yale. I'm going to let her go through it a little bit more detail in a second. But then found her way back to Harvard. I'm skipping a few areas here. And then at IBM, where she started in quantum computing, and now she is the growth product manager in community partnerships at IBM Quantum and QuizKit. So welcome, Dr. Lee. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Al.
0: Look, we're going to talk about quantum computing. And I have to say up front that my team tends to give me a hard time for asking or acting like I'm new to subjects, or they give me a hard time because a lot of times I'll say, you're the expert, not me, you know, and or yeah, that's just my midwest humble attitude. Now we're talking quantum computing, and all that applies, I think, for me. Yes, I've read about quantum computing, but I will not even act like I know it in detail. In fact, I, the more I read, I think, the more confused I get. So I'm hopeful that you're going to help us out today, but welcome. If you wouldn't mind, share your experience and background with us, and then we'll jump into a few questions.
1: Thanks for the introduction. Uh, So as you said, uh, I've hopped around a bit. I started as a biology major at Hampton University, which is a a small historically black college in Virginia, uh, which is really important in sort of my whole story. After that, I decided that I wanted to do research, which is how I ended up at Harvard University as a biologist. And wanted to be a professor and sort of hopped around there, but ultimately ended up at IBM where I wanted to work at the intersection of business and science. And and that's how I got in our quantum computing program. So I know that I'll talk a lot more about quantum computing today. uh, But the real thing to sort of kick off with is it's new technology. The world's really excited to learn about it. Uh, Like you said, I think most people get more confused as they learn that's what makes it interesting and that's what makes it exciting. So excited to be here and excited to to talk more about how to to make it real to folks.
0: Could you say a bit about your day-to-day job in quantum computing today?
1: Sure. So I work on our Qiskit team. So Qiskit is the open source software development kit that you actually use to program a quantum computer. Which is extremely important, right? We've got this Great technical hardware. In order to access it, you actually need a a software kit. So IBM developed an open source platform. And my main job is to get more users on our platform, contributing and engaging to the community and ultimately getting excited about what quantum computing is and what we think it'll be in the future.
0: When you're in the office, are you in Yorktown?
1: (laughs) Yes. So I'm based in... IBM Research headquarters in Yorktown, surrounded by the research scientists that are building the hardware, the software and applications teams that are thinking about what to do with it, which has been great.
0: I had the pleasure of being at Yorktown. I was visiting a client. Actually, we're having a client dialogue. And I got the opportunity to go see the quantum computer. And I have to say it was like a big event. Like they took the client, myself, you know, a lot of other folks. We had to go like behind two solid locked doors, then into like a a chamber. (laughs) We go in, we look at the quantum computer. It's like, do not touch anything, no pictures whatsoever. And then they took us out. So it was a very special occasion. I presume that there's still have tours, but it was pretty cool. But here's the challenge you have today. I have a buddy. He's not in the tech business. He listens to my podcast and he tells me over and over again, he goes, look, your podcast isn't simple. You keep saying making data simple, that's the name of the podcast, but it's very difficult for somebody that's not in technology. I said, well, it's mostly for folks that are in technology. He said, well, I would like to understand something. So could you make something simple for me? And the one thing, the topic that he's really interested in is quantum computing. So that's the challenge you have today is to find a way to keep some of this simple. I was actually looking online and there was a uh, an article that talked about quantum computing, explained it In five different levels of difficulty, a child, a teen, a college student, a grad student, a professional. Let me say one more thing. You know, I graduated electrical engineering. I took, you know, many classes around physics, and in physics three, it was essentially quantum mechanics. It was the theory of relativity. I remember being in this big, big auditorium. They handed out the, I think, the first quarter's test results is the only time I ever recall that I got a 39. I remember this very best. I had 39 on a test. And I'm looking at this test, panicking. What am I gonna do here? And then before I could get up and leave, two minutes later, they talk about the curve and I got a B. I'm like, oh, I got a B with a 39. So that's quantum mechanics to me. <laughs> so describe what quantum is, if you would, uh, and let's start there.
1: Quantum computing is a new model of computation. The the real gag is that a lot of people really don't know how our classical computers work. So then we start trying to explain quantum computers, but people don't understand classical computers. So I think what's really important to start with is it's not faster AI, it's not a better HPC. It's taking advantage of properties in quantum mechanics, so those things in your exam, and using those to compute information differently. So the three properties we really talk a lot about are superposition, entanglement, and interference, which are all kind of unique to quantum mechanics, and we're then applying them to create special quantum algorithms, which we can then use to compute information differently. And by leveraging these, what we can do is actually find potential solutions faster, right, in fewer steps. And that's the promise, and that's what's gotten people really excited. Uh, We've seen algorithms and theories from the 90s where essentially we know that with a really, really good quantum computer, we can actually solve certain problems faster. Now, we're not quite there yet. We're still doing research. Our our quantum devices are small. But the big question is, because we have these unique properties of quantum mechanics, um, how can we then apply them? to the actual computation of information. And so that's what a quantum computer is doing.
0: Computer parts or resistors are starting to approach the size of an atom. Mm -hmm. We're starting to hit physical limits. We're dealing with zeros and ones. What is quantum computing going to do for us that we cannot do today?
1: So the truth is classical computers are really, really great at solving lots of problems. There are also lots of problems that classical computers just won't ever be able to solve. I think the easiest example is to think about multiplication and factoring. Multiplying two numbers is pretty easy. I can do a lot of it in my head. Uh, Once the numbers get big, classical computers can do that really easily. What's more difficult is finding the prime factors of really large numbers. Right? It's so difficult, in fact, that it forms the basis of a lot of our security protocols. And so that difference between things that are easy for classical computers, uh, there are then problems that are actually hard for classical computers, but they could be easy for quantum computers. And so we're thinking about problems on a scale that we won't ever be able to solve on classical computers, right? They'll take lifetimes to solve because we just don't have enough transistors, and it's because they're solving these problems in a different way with those properties that actually provide the potential advantage.
0: So, I do have a question, but I'm going to save it on the security piece. So, how does it work? You know, lead me into superpositioning and entanglement and interference. I mean, how does this thing work?
1: I can start with the heart of the quantum computer. So, that quantum computer you saw at Yorktown. One of the favorite things we like to talk about is the hum or the sounds of the quantum computer. But essentially, most of what you're looking at is a huge dilution refrigerator. And so with each layer you go down, it gets colder and colder and colder. Uh, So at the bottom where the quantum chip or the quantum processor is operating, it's at about 15 millikelvin. Or to put that into perspective, right, it's magnitudes cooler than outer space. So when the chip is that cold, it actually has quantum mechanical properties. Uh, We know that there are two ways to make something quantum mechanical. It can be really, really cold or or really, really small. Uh, So if it's too small, we actually can't do much with it. So we went with cold in this case. And that's how you develop the actual hardware. So it's a question of physics. It's an engineering problem. And then there's how do you actually program these quantum computers in a way to get that potential advantage that I referenced earlier. And that's the thing that I'll say we're still figuring out, right? There are a few well-known quantum algorithms where we have the mathematical theory to say, once quantum computers are good enough, they'll be there. But we have a lot of people doing research on how to make the computers better, on how to design and optimize quantum algorithms. But it starts with that quantum processor that's operating at those extremely cold temperatures. You then send down microwave pulses where you're actually manipulating what we call a qubit, a quantum version of a bit. And through that, you do a series of like circuits or gate operations, which are kind of comparable to the gate operations we might do on a classical computer, but these gates are operating on like multiple qubits at a time. And then different parts of your algorithm, like you have this ability to interfere where the most likely answer is getting amplified, the least likely answer is getting canceled out. And because of that, with the proper algorithm, you can actually find solutions in fewer steps. And so it all sounds a bit like magic, and it's, it's kind of a black box, especially when you start going into the details. But the big thing is, is leveraging these properties, which are often based in ideas in linear algebra, you can search through solution space differently than you might on a, a classical computer.
0: You know, this is tough. <laughs> so, all right. Got you. So let's step back. I want to get to the qubits here in a bit. You talk about it being extremely cold. Got it. Colder than outer space. Could you repeat again why that's required and how do we keep it that cold?
1: We need the qubits or the quantum processors to have their quantum mechanical properties, right? So that's what's actually unique about the quantum computer. The fact that Things can be in a superposition, which is this linear combination of zero or one, so that when you're getting your answers back, you have this probability distribution across your zeros and ones. It's important that they have these properties, and these properties are required because that's the way the the computation is being done.
0: So let me ask you this. My mind, I think most people, particularly in the industry where we struggle with this, is we've been trained with zeros and one, right? Yes, no, on, off. That's how it works. When we're dealing with qubits or superpositioning, like you say, it's across zeros and ones, it can have multiple states. There's a level of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. How are you able to determine the answer? of the question at hand with so much uncertainty?
1: That's a great question. And honestly, I don't even know if I have a simple way of answering. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) Yeah, I'd say that there are some interesting things to think about. Um, One of the most important is just the idea of probabilities. We say it's this linear combination of zero and one. But what really happens once you measure out the answer is you get a probability distribution, right? It was 70% zero and 30% one. And then if you imagine that you have all of your possible solutions on the x-axis and then some probability on the y, like the probability is higher for the selected solution. And so that's the important part, right? that rather than just having some deterministic answer, you have a distribution of answers. You can search that space differently. There's something super funky in quantum mechanics where you actually have probability amplitudes. They can be negative or positive. And so it's that combination of things where you you can sort of picture it, right? Where if I have five solutions, If I do two operations, my middle solution now has a probability of of 90% while the others have a probability that's less than 10% combined, which could be very different than a classical computer, which would actually have to say this solution, yes or no, this solution, yes or no, this solution, yes or no. And so it's those sorts of actions that the quantum computer is taking advantage of because of the probabilistic distribution.
0: I was talking with an expert on it. We were walking through different scenarios and getting some of the probabilities that you mentioned. And uh, I don't know how we got here, but at some point the gentleman said, well, you've got to get this answer quickly because it could dissipate and go away. And I said, what do you mean it could dissipate and go away? And he said, it's not like it's stored in memory permanently or on the hard drive where you can always retrieve it, again, there's a level of uncertainty here, so it can dissipate and go away. Does that resonate with you? And if so, could you explain that?
1: So there's this idea of coherence, uh, which is essentially how long does your qubit have its quantum mechanical properties? So classical computers, they're great, right? We've been doing research and work on them for so long, that we figured out a lot. Quantum computers, we're excited because these quantum mechanical things make them unique and we can do computations differently. But it's also uncertain, like you said. So we've got to deal with that uncertainty in different ways. The most important thing, or, or one extremely important thing, is the length of time that it has its quantum mechanical properties because the entire problem needs to be solved in that time. So... At one point, coherence was extremely small, like nanoseconds small, right? And we're doing research on finding ways to extend the length of the coherence or essentially how long it has its, its quantum mechanical properties. So it definitely resonates and it's, it's one of the big research questions. The shorter the coherence time means that you can only run problems of a certain size. It limits what you can do now and, and that's why it's one of the, the more interesting research questions that we know will be critical as the technology continues to develop and mature.
0: So what kind of problems then is quantum computing best suited to answer when you're dealing with this coherence issue?
1: I'll say one of the early use cases that we think quantum computing will be great for is simulating quantum mechanics, right? So the the idea of quantum computing... Oftentimes, people reference a quote by Richard Feynman where he said that quantum computing, that theres he's not satisfied with classical computing because it won't ever be able to to mimic the quantum mechanical parts of nature, right? And so from that, if we have a quantum mechanical system, it would be best suited to solve problems that are quantum mechanical in nature. So things like calculating ground state energy, better understanding molecular simulation. Those are problems that we think quantum computers will be well suited. And they're hard problems because you're thinking about a lot of interactions, a lot of interactions in space. And as soon as you add like an additional input, the size of your problem starts to explode, right? We think about a lot of science as an estimation because our computers actually aren't great at solving them. In a similar note, there are other things in the, the space of optimization, in the space of machine learning, um, in risk analysis, that we also think quantum computers could be well suited to solve. Um, but it's it's really the space of quantum mechanics, and we've done work at IBM in calculating the ground state energy of molecules on our quantum computers up uh, to start understanding what's possible.
0: Do you think quantum computing will ever replace traditional computing?
1: Oh, absolutely not. Classical computers are great, as I I mentioned earlier, and they're really, really good at certain problems. And so we actually envision a world where they'll work together uh, really well. As of now, the only way to access a quantum computer is via your classical computer on the cloud, right? So there are a few steps we would have to take before it got to a point where it would replace classical computing, and that just doesn't seem possible or necessary, honestly.
0: Is quantum computing really even a computer? The reason I asked that is, yes, it can answer some questions for us, and maybe in that context it's defined as a computer, but I've heard others uh, refer to almost, it's like comparing a light bulb to a candle you know, create light, but uh, the physics uh, are completely different.
1: I think that's a a philosophical question. (laughs) Um, We actually define a computer as, and maybe I won't even say we, I'll say that I define a computer as something that has an initial state. There's a, a set of operations, and then you need something that reads out or measures that state. And in that case, absolutely a quantum computer is a computer in the same way that the DNA in our cells are in some way processing information. If you use your working definition of computer as something that's a transistor that must do X, Y, and Z, then you're not actually thinking about like what a computer does, right? Which we'll is process information and that's in a quantum computer does that too.
0: Stepping back a bit, we talk about superposition being, you know, not zeros and ones, but more probabilistic, I guess I should say, in nature. You talked about entanglement as well. Can you talk a little bit more? I mean, I mean the definition and uh, what entanglement is?
1: So entanglement is one of those interesting features, and I think the most simple way to think about it in the context of a quantum computer why it's important is because it provides this unique ability to scale. Oftentimes you'll hear someone say that every time you add a qubit, it doubles the potential compute power because if you have two qubits, you're then representing four states. And so as soon as you add another qubit, you're representing eight. And so entanglement inherently provides like potential for the compute space to explode. What it is in practice, in a more formal definition, you can't describe two parts independently. Instead, it's a description of the the entire system. And so essentially you can contain more information in states that are entangled than you could if they were independent. Does that make sense? Wow.
0: It makes some sense, but it's pretty deep. (laughs) I hope my buddy, he's getting upset right now thinking, this is not easy.
1: (laughs) But look. Einstein called it spooky action at a distance, right? So if Einstein didn't really get it.
0: Wow. All right. So let's assume we got all that. And I hope everybody's following along so far. Tough concepts, but I think you've explained them well. So who can actually use this quantum computer? And I think we're probably heading back into your real specialty, which is the quiz kit. But who can use it and how do they use it? If I wanted to go use the quantum computer today, what would I have to do?
1: Google IBM quantum computer and and log on to our IBM quantum experience. And you and anyone else can start programming on real quantum hardware on the IBM cloud. The most important thing that I I actually hope everyone leaves with is that anyone and everyone can program on a quantum computer. You can log onto that website, access a quantum computer. I don't want to say that anyone can do it because that might be oversimplifying it, uh, but we have a few different options. So you could do a drag and drop and play with different circuit design. You could code. So, we have code. Uh, if you know some basic Python, you could actually start programming on a quantum computer. But one thing that IBM has been extremely intentional about is as we're building this field of quantum computing, making sure that it's open and accessible. Um, the field has come such a long way from being something that only theoretical physicists whispered about that we want as many people as possible, so students, professors, early career changers, and enthusiasts to, to be able to access and play around.
0: Any language? Um, or is Python the language of choice?
1: Python is IBM's language of choice. Uh, there are other companies exploring other languages. Some are making up their own. Um, we, we thought that as far as barrier to entry, that using something people were familiar with was one very important step.
0: Another question, kind of a, a sidestep, but how many qubits are we up to now? and what relevance does that have?
1: IBM recently announced that we have 65 qubits um, on our, our new devices. And that has some relevance, but not all. So rather than just focusing on the number of qubits, IBM's coined a term called quantum volume. And that essentially takes into account that the devices are still early and still young. And because of that, you need to think about more than just the number of qubits. You need to think about gate fidelity and interference and the way the qubits are talking to each other. Um, And so our recommendation for how to actually measure the power of a quantum computer is with a term called quantum volume.
0: So does that mean, you know, traditionally, uh, as you were talking earlier, there is a multiplication or scaling effect relative to how many qubits you add, but you're saying, Hey, that's really a misnomer. It's really about quantum volume. To determine how powerful a quantum computer is is that right or
1: that is exactly what i'm saying at some point far in the distance fault tolerant com- quantum computers will be a thing i have no idea how long that will take until then while we're dealing with things like error correction gate fidelity quantum volume is the better way to think about the power of a quantum computer
0: is there a possibility that this is a, a science experiment and it goes nowhere? Well it'll always go someplace, but will it will quantum computing end up looking something completely different by the time it really starts driving real world solutions and it look like looks like today? Or would you say, no, we're we're really close. It's already driving solutions today.
1: Uh, I, I actually think that both possibilities are exciting, right? So at IBM, we think this is the the quantity, quantum decade and and we'll be able to start exploring those sorts of solutions. Uh, but then I, I also sometimes get a little more imaginative and say, if you think about the classical computer in the 40s, who knew that we would have one in our, our pockets today? And I, I think that both possibilities are equally exciting. So like, sure, let's solve the problems that we think a quantum computer could do today in the next five years. That's exciting. But what's even more exciting are the problems that we haven't even thought about.
0: If you were making a bet, what do you think we're going to see out of quantum in the next, let's say, 10 years?
1: Uh, I've mentioned a lot in the The quantum simulation space. So I'm really excited about better understanding uh, material design and and material discovery. Uh, So there are some things that we just don't understand well. One classic example that people use is just the nitrogen fixation process, which is necessary in things like fertilizers. So bacteria do it. They do it cheap because they're bacteria. Um, and it's critical for our entire agricultural system. Uh, we've found a way to do that process, but it's extremely expensive. It's extremely time consuming, but it's required because we need fertilizer. Um, so imagine if we could better understand, like on a molecular level, those sorts of things. Uh, that's what I'm, I'm most excited about. People play with the idea of why is spider web so light but so strong? Being able to leverage this sort of thing to understand those properties and molecular interactions, I think is extremely exciting. All
0: right. So I put a note down here on security, and I wanted to ask you about this. I'd say about one out of three individuals I talk about in quantum, somewhere along in the discussion, they say, yep, our security algorithms are obsolete with quantum. We're going to have to redo it, and we're going to have to redo them all very quickly. They feel like they're going to be they'd be broken and make them um, open to threat. Do you have any comments there? Is that actually um, a real world concern?
1: So while there's definitely potential for a future like, fault tolerant, really really perfect quantum computers uh, to break today's encryption protocols, like we actually already have quantum safe cryptography that we're working with clients today on. So at IBM, we have something called lattice-based crypto. It's something where unlike factoring, right, which I mentioned is one of the key bases of a lot of protocols today, it uses the the idea of patterns for crypto. And because of that, it's a lot harder in what we think is actually impossible for quantum computers to break. What I generally tell people who are extremely worried about security is that it's probably something you should think about today. If you have data that will be important in 30 years today, then you should certainly think about protocols, but there's a lot to it, right? So building proper agile security protocols is just an important thing that people should think about. And it's possible to protect your data today from future quantum computer capabilities.
0: What does your team do to facilitate the development on quantum computers?
1: As I mentioned, I'm on our, our Kiskit community team, uh, where we're actually really focused on engaging other people and how they're using quantum computers and what they're doing. So because the field is new, because most of your college courses don't have quantum computing classes, right? There's this huge gap where there's a question, what do people need in order to be quantum ready? Uh, And so that's the the gap that I'm working on filling now. And so we're doing that in lots of ways. Part of the team has a strong focus on education and actually building out that content, right? And we're very serious about it. They recently released a 27-hour course online for free that's hands-on to get started on quantum computing. Like, that's huge because colleges don't have it yet, right? I've talked to graduate students that five years ago didn't even think that quantum computers could be real. I'm more focused on actually building different partnerships uh, so that we can also grow our user base and get more people engaged, we recently just announced a huge partnership with historically black colleges um, where we're focused on building a a research and education center with them. And I'm extremely excited about that, especially as a a graduate myself, we're doing work with classical developers. So what tools do they need to be onboarded to quantum computing? Um, I'm, I'm working with some cool accelerators and innovation labs to ask, how to engage their startups in quantum computing. And so honestly, I think my dream state, my ideal state is how do we ensure that everyone is thinking about quantum computing uh, and more specifically IBM and what we're doing in the space?
0: So one more question, actually two more questions, and then I want to go into a little bit about Dr. Kayla Lee, uh, to finish up, if you don't mind. First one is, is where can folks reach you or where would you advise them to go to learn more about quantum computing?
1: The first place to start is Qiskit.org. So uh, Q-I-S-K-I-T.org. That's where you'll find the course that I mentioned. You'll find tutorials. You'll find access to our actual community and then we're extremely active on youtube too so there's a range of videos from i'm an expert in error mitigation to hey i just want to hear some people talk about potential careers in quantum computing uh so Kiskit.org is definitely one of the best places to start or a simple quantum computing ibm search
0: very good and you personally anything is linkedin a good spot or
1: yes uh i always recommend uh, following me or connecting with me on linkedin generally you can find me if you search kayla lee and ibm together
0: very good and one more question i know and i was reading about ibm hbcu quantum center i know you're involved heavily on that can you tell us a little bit about it
1: sure uh so hbcus are historically black colleges and universities they're extremely important in just the development of black professionals And IBM recently announced a a multi-year investment in essentially building research and education capabilities at those schools. So it's a network of 14 HBCUs in the U.S. We've got a set of research scholars that are undergraduates that are essentially building research programs and doing work on Qiskit with our quantum computers. And we're essentially focused on building the next generation of quantum researchers. So I'm extremely excited that a tech company like IBM has been so supportive and investing in this community.
0: All right, Kayla Lee, how do you go from microbiology to quantum computing?
1: I honestly think it was a combination of right place and, and right time. So my favorite part of my story is my dad was a lifetime IBMer. I was the really lame kid that wanted to be an IBM executive when I grew up. And then I went and studied biology, which is not what most people do uh, that work at IBM. <laughs> but, but because of time, I, I joined in IBM research. I actually did do biology research when I started. I um, mean, like I said, I was looking for that combination of business and science. Uh, I wanted to talk to people about science and I wanted people to get excited about it. Uh, And so at that time, the Quantum Computing Consulting Group was being formed. They wanted people with a technical background, but also people that could could talk and get people excited. I happened to meet my boss and have those conversations at the right time, uh, which is what led me here.
0: But I think one thing I would say, though, microbiology, physics, psychology, all those tend to make very good computer scientists, by the way, and we have a lot of them around.
1: And, and I, maybe I undersell the biology. Like technically I studied systems biology, so I was still very computational. I used math models to describe gene systems. So in that regard, I have a lot of skills that I think mesh really well with quantum computing. Um, and there are a lot of people that are interested in the intersection of quantum computing and biology. So some of those are my my more interesting conversations. But I think that the field has already proven to be extremely interdisciplinary. And that's what we want. We have engineers, mathematicians, data scientists, computer scientists. So I, I don't think that being a biologist is a hindrance. If anything, it adds a new perspective to the field and the way we think about problems.
0: Totally agree. What does a quantum scientist do for fun?
1: <laughs> pre-pandemic or post?
0: <laughs> Let's go pre-pandemic because I think everybody's been altered a bit.
1: Yeah. Um. So this year was actually supposed to be my national park exploration year. So I'm on a mission to visit all of the national parks. Wow. That's um, cool. I, I had two on my belt before the pandemic hit. I guess you camp?
0: I mean, is that how you do it? Do you camp outside or
1: yeah, so I basically planned several road trips. Some were camping in lodges, others were camping outside. I kind of wanted to let the parks determine my story. So I national parks, I like hiking a lot. And I'm a crossfitter. So you should be surprised I didn't mention that first in the interview. (laughs)
0: I actually, when I looked on your LinkedIn, I saw that. And you you got some kind of accreditation or certification of some sort.
1: Yeah. So my my pastime in graduate school, I was actually a yoga and a spin instructor.
0: So you can make your body do all kinds of things that mine won't even come close to doing. I get it. What book do you recommend most?
1: Uh, my favorite book is The Alchemist. It's a fun book that reminds me that life is a journey. Um, and that perspective matters a lot.
0: Very good. All right. I'm going to finish real quick with a little game called Would You Rather. These are very simple. I only got three questions. You got to pick one side or the other. Typically, the ones that I think are easy are the ones that somebody surprises me with. Well, but we'll see. Uh, number one, science or business?
1: <laughs> science.
0: Alright. And number two, physics or computer science.
1: Computer science.
0: Over physics, really. See, that's again, I would have bet my house you would have chose physics.
1: You know, that was a hard one. I've <laughs> since I've joined quantum computing and been in this space, I've basically just been trying to figure out which space I fit in now. I'm like I still think I'm a biologist, but maybe I'm a this or maybe I'm a that. So, yeah, I think computer science.
0: I just think you're a smart doctor. Harvard or Yale?
1: Oh, Harvard. Absolutely.
0: I knew you were going to say that. That was (laughs) an easy one. Well, you did spend a little time at Yale, did you not?
1: I did. Um, I I actually started my undergrad research career at Yale. So I, I love it a lot. I met one of my best friends there. And she went to Yale for her, her doctorate degree. So it's not too bad.
0: Is she in quantum too or completely different?
1: Uh, no, she's saving the world in the Gates Foundation.
0: Wow, that's, that's not bad either. That's pretty good. Very nice. Hey, uh, Dr. Kayla Lee, thank you very much for being on the podcast. I think you did extremely well answering these questions. Very complex questions that you helped folks like myself Get a better understanding of so thank you for being here yeah
1: thank you for having me
0: and for you listeners as always i'll I'll end with a thank you as well Uh, hit us on almartintalksdata gmail.com and until next time we'll see you on the podcast
1: And out.